All right. Well, good morning. That's, that is by far the best intro I've ever had, ever. Thank you. Uh, so um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Aaron. Uh, my hot wife, Lauren, is back in the, uh, the kids area, uh, hanging out back there, doing, doing kids' men stuff and uh, loving it. And uh, we've got four kids. Um, our oldest is our son, Cohen. And then we have three little girls, Livia, Mariah, and Johanna. And uh, it has been an absolute joy and a treat to be here at Journey for uh, just now a little over a year and a half. And uh, we, have, we have loved it. And I was actually doing the, the song, uh, singing about, you know, that we were saying thank you to God. And, you know, often I am, I am thankful for, for you as a, as a church body and for this uh, student ministry that I get to lead. And uh, the leaders that uh, help me and fix the stuff that I miss, they do such a wonderful job. And, and so thank you for... Uh, Thanks for putting up with us for a year and a half already. I'm excited for more, and we're, uh, we're thankful for what God has been doing. We are going to be continuing in our series, uh, No Other Gods. And uh, if you haven't been uh, keeping up with what's been going on, we are, we are a few weeks into a series titled No Other Gods and talking about how in our own lives we have, um, we have a, a throne, right? We have things that we will exalt, things that we will uh, put as primary, things that we're pursuing, right? There's a lot of different words that we can use for that. Um, but within our series, we're talking about there being a throne in our lives and how that when we are putting other things there, that it is, a, it is idolatry, right? I mean, we, we, can't, we can't sugarcoat that. If we move God out of center and focus in our life, it's something else, right? And anything else, no other gods, right? Anything else that is our center and is our focus becomes an idol, so we've been talking through uh, several different uh, components of that. And today we're actually going to be talking uh, through the story and the life of Jacob. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 25. That's where we're going to start today. And then, uh, and then I'm going to journey us a little bit. He's like what I did there. Journey us a little bit into Genesis chapter 29. And hold on. Hold on to your flannels. We might even jump into Genesis chapter 32. I know. You guys are so excited. This is why you're my favorite service. This is great. You guys are just ready to go. This is going to be a good time. This is going to be a good time. So uh, just so that we can kind of have an understanding of the life and uh, what it all is going on with uh, Jacob, I'm going to kind of share a little bit of his story, talk to you a little bit about who he is and, and what we see throughout his experiences and how, that, how we see Jacob actually reflected in some of our own lives, Okay. So, like I said, we're in Genesis chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 19. And this is, uh, this is where we are picking up with before Jacob and Esau, his twin brother, Jacob and Esau, before they're married. Or, excuse me, no. No. Before they're born, okay. Uh, before they are born. Wow, I am so sorry. Uh, before Jacob and Esau are born, we have, we have kind of a lineage that's happening and, and getting an understanding of where they fit into uh, the story of the Bible. And so uh, we pick up in verse 19. It says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padam Aram and sister of Laban. Okay, so we're going to run into Laban later, okay? 
So everybody say with me, Laban. Laban. You guys are so good. Better than first service. Well, you're my favorite. We're going to see Laban a little bit later on, so don't forget that name. Hold on to that. Keep that in your little brain vault. Lock it in, okay? And so Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a story, I love books. I have many leather-bound books. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I have lots of books. I love reading books. I like the smell of old Some of you got that. Thank you. I love the smell of old books, and this, it's, a, it's wonderful to read, and I love it. I've loved it since I was a kid. I like reading. But also... I also like there to be, like, some, like, connection for me. And so uh, not everything is, like, you know, really, like, Shakespearean. Like, Rebecca here is not like, oh, what is, is happening to me? I think after having seen my wife pregnant with four children that it's probably a little bit more of, like, what is happening to me? Like, there's a lot of emotion in it. Maybe a little bit of pain, swollen feet and stuff. Right? And so she is expressing what is happening to me. And she's, there's emotion in there. So there's emotion in Scripture. And so, so we continue. She wants to know what is happening to her. She, she went to inquire of the Lord. Right? She is so befuddled by this that she is asking God, what's happening to me, Lord? And he shares with her. He says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Then later she gives birth to Esau. Esau comes out, and Jacob is right there holding on to the ankle. He's, he's ready. Like He wants to be number one even from the beginning, but he's not. Jacob is number two. And in this culture, what we see is actually there is there's something called a birthright. And so when the, the oldest gets the birthright, they, they are not uh, like lording over the family, but they do become the patriarch when the other patriarch passes on. They will lead the family from nation to nation. They will establish who has what and lives where. It, it's, a, it's a significant thing. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a great thing for, for Esau, but Jacob is desiring this. He's wanting this. He, he wants that attention. He wants that, uh, the affection that comes with that. And that's where we're jumping into our story with Jacob and his struggles is we're going to be focusing on the idol of being loved. Because as much as we, as much as you may know about Jacob already, and as we are uh, getting into his life today, really a lot of what he is doing is motivated by this desire to be loved. He wants, he wants his father's affection. He wants his mother's affection and attention. Jacob desires to be loved. And so, so much so that he removes God from his focus, removes God from being on the throne in his life, and places being loved. And that can look a lot of different ways. That can be uh, pursuing a loved one. That could be pursuing, you know, uh, attention and affection. Maybe love from a coworker in one way or another. You know, we talked last week, uh, Pastor Ken shared about naming and that being reputation and recognition. You know, so we can, we can see this happening a lot of, in a lot of different ways within the life of, of Jacob. So uh, if we skip on down to verse 27 in uh, Genesis chapter 25. It says, the boys grew up, 
And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, much like myself, staying among the tents. Okay? Isaac, Isaac, who had a taste of wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now we have an obvious issue of favoritism. Anybody here, like your sibling was the favorite in your household growing up? Yeah, there's some of you, yeah, like you're looking at your parents right now, okay. Um, this, is a very, this is a very different type of dynamic. A lot of times we can, we can express that in a joke. I used to tease my mom uh, relentlessly and saying that like my little, my younger brother, he's not little, but my younger brother uh, was, was her favorite and my dad's favorite and I would tease them and things. But it, it all came from just me you know, you probably don't know this about me. I joke around a little bit. Just, just going to lay that out there for you. You're welcome. And so Jacob and Esau actually have some pretty significant mommy and daddy issues here. Isaac is obviously favoring Esau. Rebecca is obviously favoring Jacob. And that begins to create division. That begins to create a divide even within their own home. And so we have Jacob who is seeking his mother's approval because he's not getting it from his father and he's not getting it from his brother. And so he's, he's desiring to be loved in any way that he can, get that affection and that attention. And then later we have that um, after they had grown up that uh, Esau is coming in, jumping down to verse 20, 29. Once Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Just, he's just, he's hangry. He's real hangry, right? And Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now, I see Jacob as probably absolutely crushing all of like the yard sales. Like this guy's looking for a deal. Like he's going to barter, right? Somebody's coming in and they're like, I'm starving. It's like, okay, let's work out a deal. Like he's not just being loving and giving food. He wants something in return. He's desiring to get this birthright because he wants that from his father. He wants his father to speak that birthright blessing over him. And Esau is flipping about it, doesn't really care. Yeah, sure. And Jacob gets the birthright. We fast forward a little bit within this, uh, this interesting family dynamic. And Rebecca actually convinces Jacob to trick her husband, his dad, Isaac, who his eyesight is failing. She puts on some uh, goat skin on his arms so that he's, he's all hairy and things and, uh, and cooks up this meal that is Isaac's favorite and says, go and trick your father into giving you the blessing. You've, you've bought the birthright, now go trick him and get the blessing. That's some, that's some pretty significant pressure. Now, he's not a child, right? He's not a little boy. He's old enough to know better. He's old enough to take care of himself because the consequences of what he does actually require him to flee the country because his brother's trying to kill him. So he's not just some, like, little boy that's like, whatever you say, mommy, right? He's, he's a dude. He should be knowing what's happening, and he doesn't because he's so desperate to be loved. He wants his mother to give him this approval. He wants his father to speak this blessing over him. And so he goes and he tricks his father. And I think that Jacob probably could have used some like play acting courses or something because 
He doesn't, like, match Esau's voice. I kind of wonder if maybe he tried, like, you know, looking at a reflection. I am Esau. I am Esau. I don't know. But his father immediately knows that his voice is not right. He questions him. He continues the deception. He leans into this lie and gets this blessing that belongs to his brother. His brother is angry. His brother chases after him. He flees the country. And here we have Jacob who has, from the beginning, that there is a there's a divided nation within the womb of their mother. Their mother and their father choose favorites, choose sides. There is a push for deception. And then Jacob is forced to flee. And, and right away we begin to see that, uh, that Jacob's first glimpses of love have started at home. And they are broken. They are broken in a pretty significant way. That there would be a, a desire for one spouse to deceive the other and a parent to choose another child openly in this way is going to create a, a broken love perspective within the life of Jacob. And that's what begins to take place. So Jacob, much like many of you, he, is, uh, he has a many-sided life. Like he's, he can't just choose one word to describe Jacob. Right, he was uh, he was a he was a cheater. He was a deceiver. He ran. He runs away. He gets. Uh, we're going to learn more about him being promoted and tricked later on, and God calling him and all of these things. And so there's not just one word. Much like this this piece of dye here, there's not just like one piece that describes Jacob, and 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 you and me as well. God. God has so much to say over us, and the world tries to cloud and, and get in the way of those things and speak some of these other things over us, and, but we, we don't really have one word, right? There's, there's, not, there's more than one side to each and every one of us, and, and some of those may be positive things, and some of those may be difficult things. Some of those may be uh, negative, negative memories in your life. And, and God is the one that can step in, and he's the only one that can step in and, and make those things become part of your past and no longer your present. But that has to be when God alone sits on our throne. It doesn't work out any other way. So we're going to, as promised, we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 29. We are in uh, verse 14. And as promised as well, we are catching back up with Laban. Good old Laban. All right? This dude. Not a great guy. But we're going to talk about him anyway. So the end, of, uh, the end of verse 14 says, Then Laban said to him, being Jacob. Jacob has now been with uh, his, his extended family because his brother is trying to kill him. He says, you are, now, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. Now let me just remind you, he's only been there for a month. He's already in love. Come on. I think he's in like or in lust, maybe a little bit more so than, than love. But still he's wanting to pursue this individual. He's wanting to pursue 
Rachel because he believes that he loves her. And so he says, I love her. I will work seven years for you in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, Laban, Laban also has a little bit of this tricky, crafty, manipulative streak in him because he's family and he knows how to be crafty. And so he doesn't say yes, he just says, well, it'd be better if I gave her to you than somebody else, but he doesn't commit to allowing Rachel to marry Jacob. And so as we, as we move forward, Jacob works these seven years, and finally it's time for, uh, it's time for the, the wedding, and he's, he's all excited. I'm, I'm ready to get married. In fact, there's, there's, some, there's some really bold language that, uh, that Jacob uses here. He says, says to the father of the woman that he's wanting to marry, give me my wife so that I can lay with her. Okay. Right? Could like some of you imagine if you were to ask permission of your father-in-law and that was part of your sentence structure? Not going well. Not going to go well at all. No dude better say that to me about any of my three little girls. Not a chance. Right? Not a chance. I'm going to hand him his own shovel. No, I'm just kidding. But what an audacious thing to say. How brash and bold can you be? How, how, how much pride can there be to speak in such a way to an individual? But Laban lets that slide. He, he already has his own plan. He gets, he gets Jacob good and tanked at the wedding party. He's like, here, have another one. Okay, Dad. And so there he is. He's absolutely bliss. He's drunk. He doesn't know what's going on. And Laban pulls a little switcheroo. And instead of it being Rachel, he sends Leah to the bedroom chamber with them. And Jacob finds out the next morning, and he's perturbed. He's a little annoyed. It's like, what the what, man? What'd you do, Laban? And so right away, Jacob says, I'll work another seven years to get Rachel. And Laban's like, you know what? That sounds like a great plan. This Laban guy, I tell you. And so Jacob works another seven years and finally gets to marry Rachel. And, man, things are going to go great now. Now, for those of you who are doing the real quick math, Jacob married Leah. Jacob married Rachel. That means Jacob has two wives. I just want to say this. Polygamy is bad. All right? Just to let you all know. This is the part of the story, again, where we don't follow the example. We learn from how bad it is, okay? In fact, later on in Scripture, Leviticus 18.18, God actually speaks directly to this situation and says, polygamy bad, okay? So, polygamy bad. Let's move on. Just a little side note. That's something extra for you. You're welcome. So, now Jacob has the woman of his dreams, 14 years. Now he's finally able to be married to her and to experience love. And man, things must be better, but they're not because his idol is being loved. He's pursuing this emptiness. There's this void in his life. As once was said, it's a God-shaped hole. And he's trying to take all of these things his love and affection from his mother, 
the respect and adoration from his father and his brother the, to impress Laban and to impress his wife. And none of that stuff is filling. It just rattles around in there, leaving him more empty than before. And so it is not this, it is not this marriage that all of a sudden makes it okay. Marriage isn't the cure for this. We see that right away in, in Jacob's life and also in Leah. Leah actually is another part of our character who experiences some of this painful, broken love that is taking place within her life. Her father doesn't see any other way for someone to want to marry her. And the only way that, according to his actions, the only way that she can uh, experience being married is for him to get somebody drunk and trick the guy. That's going to communicate a whole lot of pain to that young lady. And then the next day, her husband spends seven years pursuing somebody else. Her little sister. That's hurtful. That's pain. That's broken love. There's a, there's a skewed perspective there where there is hurt that is taking place. And it continues to perpetuate where she, she gets pregnant and she begins to think, Man, maybe now, maybe now my husband will love me. I give him a child, he'll love me now. God has seen my pain and, and my, my husband's heart will be turned towards me. These are part of her prayers as she is seeking to have this in, within herself, this God-shaped hole to be satisfied, to be filled, this ache to be gone. But she's looking, at, she's looking at all of the wrong things. And so one of the things that idolatry does in our life is it alters our thinking. Things that would be nonsense we think make sense when we don't have God as primary and number one in our life. I think back to my own life, the things that I was like, well, this is a great idea. And God was not a part of my life. They were not great ideas. They were bad, very bad ideas. But idolatry alters our thinking because we don't see it from the perspective of God. We see it from our own skewed perspective, broken lens and all. And we move on something or we act on something and we get stuck into kind of this crazy cycle where we're not moving forward in a relationship with God. We're cycling back and forth, making these same painful, hurting mistakes over and over. And God is the one that when he sits on the throne, he removes that. He begins to bring healing there. He can redirect our focus. But it's only through, it's only through an encounter with God. So um, what I find kind of fascinating about this is that uh, this is one of the worst love stories you could ever read about. Like this is not going to, this would be like the most bizarre Hallmark movie, Right? Could you imagine this, like trying to like modern day this thing with Jacob where, you know, he's like, he's like running away from issues at home and, and he ends up at like his uncle's bed and breakfast that they're remodeling out in the country around Christmas time, you know, and, and he's like, just, you know, I can do some painting and stuff, man. And Laban's like, okay. And then he, he sees Rachel out there like, Splitting wood. I just picture that she's probably tougher than he is. Uh, that's just my, my own vision. Like she's out there cutting wood and he's like, whoa. She's wearing flannel. How you doing, girl? So it'd be a, it'd be a weird Hallmark movie. 
a weird Hallmark movie. And the reason it's such a terrible love story is because the focus is all earthly. They're looking at one another. It's all this horizontal perspective, and they're not looking at the healing that, that God can bring, that Yahweh can bring into their life. And so only God is the one that can change their present to their past, and he does the same thing still today. That when we, look at, when we look at God and who he is, we're not looking at him as uh, an accessory, but that he is primary. And so oftentimes we can, we can have God as this little accessory like, a, like just a, another app on our phone. Yeah, I've got God, but I also have all of these other things. Oh, God alone, God alone must sit on the throne. And so... Uh, Again, as promised, we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 32. And this is going to be a little bit of a, a different uh, addition and continuing the story of Jacob and what is, what is taking place in his life. And just to kind of catch you up to this point, uh, this, is, this is several years, many years after uh, the, his second marriage and getting, getting married to Rachel. Uh, he now has lots of kids and lots of servants, and lots of cattle, and his wealth is expanding. Things are going great, and he's ready, he's ready for a move. Right? And so he and his sister wives, <laughs> right, like, whoa. They decide, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's pack up, and let's, let's get moving. So they, they pack up everything they've got. They're moving across the land. And things, and they get to they get to this river, and uh, in Genesis chapter thirty-two, verse twenty-four, it says that so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Then the man said, "Oh, sorry, I lost my place." When when the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let go unless you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and overcome. So now Jacob is having an encounter with Yahweh. He's having an encounter with God. The, the descriptions that are used in describing this man that uh, Jacob is wrestling with says that it is, he is actually wrestling with God. And so sometimes we, we can use it, some of that terminology. That, oh, I've really been wrestling with God over something. This is Jacob actually grappling with an individual that is there. He is, he is tangibly, physically wrestling with God. And... And what I, what I find fascinating is his statement that, um, that he says, I will not let go unless you bless me. And what we begin to see here is that Jacob is having this perspective shift from looking at his mother for being loved, looking at his father, his brother, his father-in-law, his two wives, his kids, his possessions, his things, to be loved, to fill that desire to be loved that God has given us, but it can only be satisfied by God. 
And here Jacob begins to make that turn towards Yahweh. And that same tenacity, right, it's not about, oh, he has to have a personality change. No, he has to have a, a, a heart change. And God's going to come in and, and change him. But who he is and who God has made him to be is still what ends up allowing him to experience the blessing when he's wrestling with God. Because he's tenacious. Because he won't let go. And so I see, I see Jacob, you know, kind of this like this wrestling move and stuff. And then all of a sudden, boom, his hip is out and he starts to go down. And as he's going down, he just wraps up that ankle. Like he's just got a hold of one of the ankles of Yahweh. And he's just, he's just holding on. He's got that locked in. Maybe he's getting drugged around a little bit, right? Like, hey, come on, let go. No. He's just holding on, holding on. Just as tenaciously as he pursued his mother's affection and the rest of his family's affection, now he is holding on to the ankle of the Almighty, the creator of all things, and he's not going to let go. Nothing's, gonna, nothing's going to pry his arms open because he's at his wit's end. This is his last-ditch effort. Nothing else is satisfied. It's got to be you. I'm not letting go. And he just hangs on. And, and there's where we see that, that God speaks over him. An entire life spent trying to be loved by having people speak over him. His mother, his father, wanting that blessing. I mean, to the extent of tricking, deceiving, lying to his own father. So that he can have someone speak love over him. And it's not until he is on the ground, one leg not working right, and wrapped around the ankle of the creator of all things, that he is able to say, I need you to speak over me. You're the only one. Like in his heart, he begins to see that this is, this is the one that he has been needing all along. He thought it was all this other stuff. And just like, just like we are many-sided in our descriptions and Jacob is like this piece of dice, we, we too have, at some point in our lives, we have been pursuing other things than God. We can't all say, I don't think anyone can say, that we have completely, fully pursued God at all times in all things. And so there has been this time where we have, where we have stepped out and we have moved God aside. But then here, to see that if Jacob, if Jacob can get God's attention and hold on to him in prayer, and hold on to him in desperation, that's, that's the God that we serve. His word says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so whatever that thing is that has been trying to subvert your attention and, and get, get you out of focus on, on Christ, God provides a way out. And, and each and every time it has been in an encounter with him. And through that encounter, we experience peace. Jacob experienced peace where there had been this frantic desperation to be seen and to be loved. And so, so when we look at 
when we look at this story, we see Jacob. We see all of the descriptions of Jacob. We see, uh, we kind of hold it up as a, as a mirror. Kind of this like, so, so what? So what, what's the application here in, in our own life? And, and it would be, it would be, how are we presenting, excuse me, how are we pursuing God? Are we pursuing God along with these other things? Are we, are, we placing, are we placing some of those other things on the throne of our life when it should be just Him? And, and that doesn't mean that, it's, that loving others is bad. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that uh, marriage is, is, is a wrong thing at all. No, no. Marriage is great. I love being married. It's awesome. That's one of God's many gifts. But when we take something that God, even as a gift from God, and we place it there instead of pursuing Him, that's, that's an idol. It's out of alignment. And to be totally transparent, totally honest, I, I, I struggle with this one. I, I've struggled with this one since I was a kid. I, I feel this story of Jacob without the weird family dynamic and the sister wives, okay? Let's just be clear. But that, that desperation to be loved, I, I connect with that. And, and there, there are times where I can see, I can see even in my, my marriage with my wife that there can be this slow tipping to placing her before God. And, and, and I can't do that. For the health of our own relationship, I, I, on a regular basis, will tell her, babe, you're number two in my life because God's number one. It's got to be that way. Otherwise, otherwise our relationship is it's going to be at risk. And I, I don't want that. So let's, let's stand this morning as we, as we prepare to close. What, what I want for you is I, I, want, I want for you to have that, that encounter with God. I believe that I believe God is a God that changes and transforms. I believe God is a God that that heals and mends and and whether it's a it, you're looking at this story thinking, man, my heart's been broken that way, or you're looking at this story going, I've had a broken perspective of love. God wants to mend your broken love. That's, that's, he's in the business of restoring and healing. He, he doesn't just use these stories to point out flaws and hurts and pain and then go, good luck. He walks with us. He talks with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. That's the God that we serve. So... In a moment, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray. We're gonna open up these altars, and we'll have people that are that will be ready to pray with you. But if you want to find your own place and just like Jacob, get a hold of that ankle of God and go, Lord, I I have some realigning to do. Bless me, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. These altars will be open for you, Jesus. In your holy name, I speak peace, Jesus. 
for those who are wrestling with placing other things in their life ahead of you. God, I pray that you would give them strength to be able to encounter you, to pursue you. That in their wrestling, that they would be tenacious enough to not let go. To never let go until you bless them, until you speak over them. Lord, may we seek, may we seek your speaking in our life more than others. Your loving in our life more than any other. Mend our broken love, Lord. In your name, Jesus. Amen.